Women of Galilee, go to your homes. Why would you come back here as soon as the Sabbath is over? Our master is dead, the tomb is sealed, and a Roman guard is keeping watch over it. What would you ever hope to find in this God-forsaken place? talk to you guys this Easter Sunday morning we are kind of getting to the end of a series that we've called the shadows and today's talk is called the light of life and I want to begin with a discussion about flawed assumptions like this one. Oh, sure honey let's go down to the mall with our 18 month old and stick him on a mangy rodent's lap and I'm sure he'll smile at the camera right and I mean you see you see the product of a flawed assumption now, I have a good friend, a pretty good friend, who for a number of years had invested in mutual funds. You know, stock funds where you get a professional stock picker to select a group of investments across a wide spectrum of diversified assets. But in the collapse of 2008, he decided he was going to make his own investment in stocks. And he convinced his wife that he'd done his research, he'd found a guaranteed red-hot, can't-miss investment, and it was in bank stocks. He told her that they'd literally been beaten to death over the supposed housing crisis. The whole thing was overrated, and that is, as soon as this small economic dip hit bottom, that the bank stocks would spring back and they would make a killing. So he plowed a couple of thousand dollars into it, likely against his wife's better judgment, though she trusted him because he was a professional. And guess what happened? The thing bellied up, and today that stock isn't even worth the paper it was written on. My friend's name is John Eisman. <laughs> Your sympathy this Easter morning is very touching. I want you to know that. It was a flawed assumption. I read this week there was a couple of writers who were showing the commonality of this problem. Because we go through life and we make these assumptions about things. And we live out of the assumptions. 
Maybe you have an assumption relationally at one point in your life where you said, you know, if I just find the right person, my mom told me if I just find the right person, then I'll be happy. And so you set out on this desperate search for the right person. When you find him or her, oh, do you remember? Oh, the butterflies. I mean, just talking for hours on the phone and fell in love and you got married. You thought it was going to last forever. Bliss, bliss, bliss. And then, like two days later, <laughs> suddenly it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Not as happy as I thought I was going to be. Maybe I married the wrong person. And so some of us have, have continued to go on that search over the course of time. Maybe there's been two or three or four or five right persons. And, and maybe there's been broken relationships and busted marriages. And, and you look in the mirror and you go, maybe I bought into a wrong assumption about this. Maybe you had assumptions financially that if you could just get enough money, if you could accumulate enough uh, stuff, if you could get the, the, the right amount of things, you'd be happy. But the, matter, the, the truth of the matter is, and I know this is true for many of my friends and I, when we sit around and talk about it, uh, you, many of you have more money right now than you've ever had in your life. But you're, you're not nearly as happy as maybe you once were. You're drinking more, you're escaping more, you're traveling more, you're purchasing more. Just trying to find the right mix, you know, to, to live up to that assumption. I mean, maybe you have flawed assumptions about family. That's why we're doing this series, to maybe correct some of the assumptions we have about family starting in two weeks. Maybe you started looking around, you thought the reason you weren't happy, the reason you weren't complete was because you didn't have a family. So, well, you get a husband, I'll get a wife, I'll have a couple kids, get the SUV, get the house, Take the whole crew to like Disney, and that'll be good. And somewhere on that Dumbo ride, right, you're like, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Maybe you have flawed assumptions vocationally. You thought if you could get the right position, if you got the right career, if you had the right title and significance, man, you'd be somebody. So you chase the dream, and, and you, you put a lot of money into school loans, and you land the position, and you climb the ladder. This, you get there and it's like vapor. In fact, I mean, I, a lot of my friends, I know they get up every Monday morning and they hate going to work. And that's because we, we have flawed assumptions. And flawed assumptions are dangerous things in the real world. But flawed assumptions are even profoundly uh, so more dangerous in the spiritual world. I think all of us at one time or another have made spiritual decisions about God based on flawed assumptions about God. Maybe you thought he was just distant, unknowable, just kind of a force out of touch with, with daily life. Or, or conversely, maybe you believed he was really near and he was angry at us. Or maybe he was pleased with us based on how we're doing that week. You ever have that relationship with God? Like, I'm close with God because it's a good week and God, I'm not close with God because it's a bad week. Like... You know, Lord, I went to church this week, gave a little money this week, read the Bible this week, Jesus loves me. And you have those other weeks where you're like, nah, slept in this week, drank too much again this week, got, my, got in a fight with my wife again this week. Jesus doesn't like me very much. What I want to show you this morning, in a story that I don't think most of us have ever heard told this way. 
is what happens with flawed assumptions about God and when they're applied to those of us who come to know our shadows. How many of you were here, were Friday? Were here Friday night? If you were here Friday night, raise your hand. Um, it was deeply powerful for a lot of folks. We've been in this series, this concept of the shadows. We're all good people. We all want to love God. We all want to follow Jesus. We all want to be good Christian people. But we have these parts of us. You know, I'm a believer, but I doubt. Uh, I have hope, but I, I often walk in despair. And so Friday night, that Good Friday service, everything was cast in shadow. Um, just trying to really hammer that home. Even, even the congregation. I have a friend that has been coming to this church. He, he started coming here the week after I did, some 23 or 24 years ago. And he sent me a Facebook message Friday night. He said, I, I don't have much to say about dramas or services, but that was absolutely the best Good Friday, dot, 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 maybe even the best service in Mendham Hills history. See, when I tell you to come, you should really come. <laughs> totally engaging, extremely thought-provoking, and well, God spoke through every aspect. Please, please convey my sentiments to all the other volunteers. Why? Because I think for many of us, we're coming to understand that even though we're good people, we have shadows. Think about Holy Week, right? This week where Jesus rolls into town and winds up on the cross. That's the theme of Holy Week. I, did you know that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the Gospels that contain all of the story of Jesus' life, 50% of those books combined are about the last two weeks of Jesus' life. And if you just want to study those last two weeks, you'll see a lot of interesting character studies. I mean, I mean good people that love God but literally get consumed in darkness. And that can be you, and it can be me, if you're honest. Even those of us who are deep lovers of Jesus have the potential, given the right set of circumstances, to deny him out of fear or sell him out for a bag of coins or betray him with a kiss. Now, maybe you haven't been here. Maybe you're here for Easter Sunday, and you're going, what's this strange man talking about right now? Um, Here's what I know about you, even if it's your first time ever in a church or, or, or in our church. I know you're a good person, and I know you haven't killed anybody, right? Because that's usually kind of our moral stance. But here's what I'll, also what I know about you. Given the right set of circumstances, the long line at the checkout counter at ShopRite after church today, the guy who's going to cut you off at, on Route 80 around Rockaway tomorrow, the ungrateful kid who you gave your whole life to who talks back to you. The spouse yet again left the toilet seat up or his socks on the floor. I know, given just the right set of circumstances, or maybe circumstances much more severe, I know that you have a dark side. Now here's the historical record of man. Because we've all known this since creation. When human beings first started to imagine the presence and the reality of a God they didn't know, it didn't take them very long to figure out that if God put all of creation in place, if God created the heavens and the earth, he was probably powerful and transcendent and mighty and a lot holier than human beings. And so what do human beings do? Well, we start to look inward at our own hearts, our own souls, and start to think, well, I don't even live up to my own expectations. I'd like to be a better pastor. 
but sometimes I'm not. And father, and husband, and, and Christ follower, but sometimes I'm not. And sometimes I don't even live up to my own expectations, let alone God's. I don't keep my own conscience clean, let alone trying to live up to a standard of moral perfection that most of humanity would have assumed that God had, and that he has to be holding me accountable to something similar. And increasingly, as human beings over history looked into their own inner world and their own shadows, they saw the presence of darkness, mean thoughts and words, self-serving deeds, greed, injustice, prejudice, and all the rest. And so over the centuries, in fact, over the millennia, faith systems have come into focus. People all through eternity saying, all right, if I'm ever going to come into a relationship, if I'm ever going to get to this holy, transcendent being, how is that going to happen when there's such a gap between who I am and who he must be? You might think of it as this being the human side of this chasm and God's on the other side of it. And here enters the flawed assumption of humanity. God is powerful, holy, and good, right assumption. I'm not nearly as holy, powerful, or good, again, right assumption. I need to do something in order to appease or earn my way to this God to cross. I've got to figure out a way to get to him, to cross this divide that separates us. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, first time in church ever. You're living under a flawed assumption. It's this assumption that I need to do something. I need to be good enough. I need to sacrifice enough. I need to work hard enough. It leads to faith system after faith system coming into vogue over the centuries. But if you will look carefully, every major world religion, every one of them, where does the construction effort to bridge that chasm start? It always starts on the side of man. It's always the human being saying, all right, I'm going well, to fly a little straighter. I'm going I'm to live a little more nobly. I'm going to drink a little less, curse a little less, give a little more. I'm going to become more religious, whatever that means. I'm, I'm going to go to a certain number of, of church services. I'm going to pray enough. I'm going to do a certain number of charitable deeds. And The whole idea in every religion, one way or the other, is that because of massive human construction effort, maybe through the course of a lifetime, I can span this chasm between me and God. He's going to have to be pleased with me. And again, I challenge you, study every religion. It's a construction project, and it always starts on the human side, and it requires enormous effort to begin and sustain through the course of a lifetime. And there's no action. Listen to me on this Easter Sunday. This is the problem with this. There is no actual proof or sense of peace that you're going to get it done before you die. I talk to people that are dying, and you know what their greatest worry is? Oftentimes, if they don't know this truth, their greatest worry is, and I've had them say this to my face, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? What happens when you really are a good person? And you really did, you really did love Jesus. And your shadow still overtakes you. What happens when even though you believe, even though you know the truth, your shadow gets the best of you because that's the story of what was going on that first Easter. 
religious authorities, disciples, followers of Jesus, it didn't matter who they were, the shadows all overwhelmed Jesus. They put him on a cross. And that's why literally the world goes black for three hours. Here's what I want to show you in the story. I don't think you've ever seen it this way before. I want to show you the biblical account of two of Jesus' most devout followers. Listen to me. I'm going to talk to you about two followers of Jesus who loved him, followed him, sacrificed for him much more than I have, and I'm, I'm fairly certain much more than you have. Now watch this. These two guys were the most, they had the most unique privilege and opportunity ever given to a human being. It's never been given to anyone before or since. They were both, by name, personally called by Jesus to follow him. Both answered that call 24-7, three years, every day, all day, every night. Both declared repeatedly to Jesus and those around him their personal devotion to him. Both were personally trained by Jesus for ministry. Both were students of Jesus. They, they lived in that day -long, those day-long classes of discipleship. Both men saw the miracle of, miracles of Jesus every day throughout the duration of his ministry. They saw his power over evil and disease and death. Together, both men saw his power over nature. Both men heard the Lord answer every important and penetrating profound theological question ever asked. Both received and used divine power from Jesus and the authority from Jesus was delegated to them. Jesus sent both of them out to preach with that power in his name. They shared these experiences together for three years with Jesus. They were exposed to him in the exact same way, same experience, same period of time. I could go on, there's more. I mean, they both were sinners and they both knew it. They both felt profound guilt about their sins, sometimes overwhelming guilt about their sins. I could go on, that holy week, their shadows got them. They were both taken over by Satan, the scripture says, and they both betrayed Jesus publicly and violently and strongly. Openly they betrayed him, and they did it at the end of those three years just before he was crucified. Two men who lived lives side by side in the presence of the Son of God. One of them, in spite of his wicked betrayal of the Savior, is considered so honorable and so exalted, a person that some of you are named after. Some of you are named after a betrayer. People have been naming their kids after him since the first century, and they will continue to do so. He's loved, his name is honored, and his name is Peter. The word doesn't really mean anything in the, original, in the original language. It just meant stone. But this other man, this same man, in some sense, is considered so dishonorable, so despicable, you know no one who has his name. You don't know one person who's named their dog after him. He's hated and reviled and rejected. You know what his name is? Judas. You know what Judas's name meant? Praised. Such an elevated name for such a dishonorable man. And so what happened? Because the reality of it is, there was little difference in either of their lives and either of their sins. 
They both forsake Jesus, forsook Jesus. They both walked away. They both sold him out. And today we celebrate one and we revile the other. Here's the answer. The answer is what happens in their response to what happened when they discovered their shadow. When they realized they weren't really good men after all. And they weren't going to be good enough to bridge the gap. Here's what the Bible says about Judas. You know, you don't hear this taught, but this is actually so fascinating. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, Judas has now turned Jesus in. Early the next morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, just like Peter. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. Did you know, do you know Judas gave the money back? He gave the money back. And he said to the priests and the elders, I've sinned. I betrayed innocent blood. He repented. He confessed. He made right. He's on the path to forgiveness. He was so close to having generations of children named after him. But look what happens. Look at the response of man. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. It's what the world told him. And maybe that's what you, you, the world has told you. Maybe that, that's what religious systems have told you. And maybe that's what mom and dad have told you. You better be good. Jesus is watching. You better be good. God will strike you down. You better give enough money. God's only going to be pleased with you if you give a certain amount. You better go to church every Sunday. I'm the only pastor that tells you you don't have to go to church every Sunday. That's not completely true. You should go to church, but I can give you reasons for that later. But it has very little with earning your way to heaven. This is what the world told Jesus. J or Judas, Judas, I'm glad you're sorry. I'm glad you repented. Good on you, man. But it's your responsibility. We have nothing to do with it. You've got to figure out a way to bridge the gap. You messed up. You fell short. Your sin is what matters. Your remorse, you're setting it right. It doesn't matter. What's any of that to us? Your salvation, your bridge to God, that's your business. That's your responsibility. And Judas... Despite all he had seen and all he had done and experienced, all that he heard taught, he falls back, church, is what you got to understand, because this is what happens to us so times. Despite what you've been taught, despite what you know, Judas falls right back into the religious systems of the world, just like you and I so often do. It's my responsibility. Oh, I had a chance. I should have earned it. I messed up. God doesn't love me. I'm... I'm merely the total sum of my behavior. I'm a, I'm a traitor. I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I'm a thief. I'm not good enough. I can't get there. How could he? It was my responsibility. I had my chance, and I blew it. Have you ever heard that voice? You're no Christian. Look at you. Jesus knows what you're doing. You think you're a Christian? Remember when you did it last time and you said you weren't going to do it anymore? Remember when you said that? 
See, that's not the voice of an empty tomb on Easter morning. I need you to know that. It's not the voice of Easter morning. It's the voice of the kingdom, the world, who keeps telling you, just like religion has forever, there's something you can do to earn your way to God. It's your responsibility. You're to God. Here's what you are to God. You're merely the sum total of your actions and works and behaviors. And let's be honest, we all know it's probably not good enough. And if you keep believing this, you will wind up on your deathbed going, I hope I was good enough. Oh, I hope I was good enough. It's a dangerous voice. And it leads, as the Bible tells us, an example after example, when you believe that lie, it leads to slavery and death. The very next verse, after the rulers uh, said to, to Judas, what's that to us? That's your responsibility? Now verse 25. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. You see, Judas lives, and he dies on the wrong side of resurrection morning. He still didn't get it. He still thought there was a way, and it was on him, and he was guilty, and he couldn't take it. Now, Peter's story on that same far side of resurrection morning is not very much different. You know the story. Peter's all brave. Jesus, don't worry. I'll never deny you. I got your back. It doesn't matter what they do to me. I wouldn't deny you up to the grave. And you know, Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, listen, I know your shadow, and soon you're going to become acquainted with the shadow of your own faith. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. If you've been around the church any amount of time, you know he does. And his response on this side of the resurrection is not that much different than that of Judas. Here's what the scripture says of Matthew 26, 74. Immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Quote, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly, just like Judas. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't go back and make it right. He didn't go back and tell the three people, you know what, I lied, I really did know Jesus. And yet, we revere Peter and we, we pour out hatred on Judas. See, here's the difference. Judas died on the wrong side of resurrection morning, believing he had to earn his way to God. And he realized the chasm was too great. Peter, too, he feels the weight of his shadow and the remorse of his sin, but that was on Friday. And as the old saying goes, Sunday is coming. And here's how the scripture tells the story in Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early, like today, very early on the first day of the week, Easter morning, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who was going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Standard response to angel. Holy crud, right? Everybody wants a visit from an angel until an angel shows up on the scene. <laughs> Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples. Now, if this was a messenger of John Eisman to his disciples, and not Jesus Christ, but a messenger of John Eisman, here's what my message would have been. 
Go tell those thankless disciples, thanks for nothing, I'm starting over. <laughs> or maybe I would clean it up and say, well, go tell John. He's the one, I love him. Go tell, tell, go tell James and John, the boys I call the sons of thunder. Those guys, you know, they'll stir things up in town. That's who I would have called out. I mean, they fled, but at least they didn't sell me out. But I need you to see something in the scripture this morning. For those of you who worry that you're not good enough because you've come into touch with the shadow of your soul, that's actually what I read you is not actually how the, how the scripture ends the story. The last verse there is, but go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and you'll see him just as he told you. Go tell the disciples, and make sure you tell Peter. Let Peter know. I know what Peter's thinking. I know what he's struggling with, but you've got to make sure that Peter knows and understands. Jesus does not rebuke you when you fall into the trap and the snare of your shadow. He does not abandon or disown you. This is the story of Easter morning. This is the story of the empty tomb. Your failures to be good enough to get to God do not define who you are. You are not, despite what every world religion will tell you, you are not to God the sum total of your good days and your bad days. This is the message to you. This is the message if you come to understand and lament and remorse. Maybe even like Peter, really gotten in touch with who you are and started to say, holy crud, I have shadows. This Easter morning, the angel still cries out, he says, go tell Jim and John and Kim and Ron, it's okay. I understand. I, I know. I know you screwed up again. I know you, think, I know you think I'm sick of you. I'm not. I love you. You still matter to me. I still want to meet with you. I still want to have a future with you. The tomb is empty. All is forgiven. I made a new way to God. It's not going to be your responsibility after all. The work to span the chasm, it doesn't begin on your side. Those are all the lies. The work to repair the chasm starts and ends with me. My name is Jesus Christ, and the tomb is empty. Your debt's been paid. It's not your responsibility any longer. Your sins have been erased. Come, go tell Peter. So this Easter morning, even in your shadows, the message is still the same. Go tell. John, go tell them. Go tell Joe and Mike and Carol and Susan. Make sure they know the grave is empty. The chasm's bridge. Turns out I made it. Jesus made it his responsibility. And your remorse and your sorrow and your repentance do matter. If you go to my office, the staff makes fun of me because I, always, I bring it up all the time. And I, for some reason, this just resonates with me so much because I, I think I grew up with this fear of God that, he, you know, I... I, I, I don't know if I had a good day or a bad day, and I hope at the end of my life I had more good days than bad days. And, and so that always weighed on me growing up. And again, I think that's just the story of the world and, and broken religious systems. Michelangelo, though, he, he, he created this painting. And I have a picture of my office, and it just, I look at it a lot. Um, and it's, it's in the Sistine Chapel. It's called The Creation of Adam. And we have a broad picture of it here. 
Um, and see, somebody along the line might have told you that God is disinterested in you and you need to make every effort to reach him. But this picture shows a different story. In fact, if you go in my office, you'll see I just have this. This picture of the hand of man, kind of indifferent to a God that is straining as hard as he can to reach you and tell you, go tell Robin, go tell John, go tell Wayne, it's okay. I love you. The tomb is empty. Happy Easter. I'm going to have the band come up. I just got to share this one last thing. We've been talking so much about shadow, right? Let me conclude with this. Jesus said to a people who walked in shadows all the days of their lives, to a people that the apostle Paul said, not only, I'm going to be honest with you, Paul says, not only do you walk in shadows, but honestly, you are a people of darkness. This is what Jesus says in John 8. He says, when Jesus, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the key. You no longer need to walk in shadow, but for every one of you that will follow Jesus and commit your life over to this, take it seriously. Give your life away to this man. It gets better. You no longer have to walk in shadows, but catch this. This is what it says in Matthew 5. Jesus says this, You, you, Joe, Marcy, and Jim, and Carol, you are the light of the world. No one, a town built on a hill, can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, church, this Easter morning, Understand who you are. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The tomb is empty. You are not the sum total of your deeds. In fact, it turns out that you are the light of the world. Let's stand and close this song.